Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today on the program, you can hear me, but you cannot see me. That is due to my recording technologies. I can do these interviews, but not while I'm on camera. I'm working on changing that at some point. Uh, But a very exciting guest. It is Giddy Nathan. Now, full disclosure... This interview was recorded on Tuesday, but I decided to wait until Wednesday morning to post it. And uh, there has been a change in that uh, Giddy has announced a new job with The Racket magazine. So at this point, uh, he clearly didn't want to give me the scoop, which I totally understand when you're negotiating for uh, a new job. You don't want to put anything out there in case something goes wrong at the last minute. And, uh, you know, you want you don't want to mess up any kind of negotiation. So he didn't let me in on that. But uh, this morning he has announced that uh, he will be working with the Racket magazine. Um, so that is that's exciting news for him. But I think you'll enjoy this discussion. We talk about the young guys first, because that's what the uh, the ATP finals seem to uh, be all about. Then we got into a little bit of big three talk. And then at the end, we talked about what happened at Deadspin. So I think you'll enjoy this. Without further ado, Giddy Nathan. Giddy, you're now on a very short list of people who I've reached out to to come on the show. So um, I thank you for for joining me here on Monday Match Analysis. Thanks for having me. It's been a couple of weeks since the events transpired at Deadspin, where you and a lot of your uh, co-workers quit, and I'll loop back to that a little bit later in the show. I want to ask you about what went down at Deadspin towards the end, but uh, first of all, uh, how are you doing after these last couple of weeks? Yeah, it's definitely been a bizarre couple of weeks. Um, obviously, stuff at Deadspin ended in a pretty traumatic fashion, and I think we all needed a couple days to just decompress and get back to normal. And now we're all starting to pick up a little bit of freelance work. So for me, uh, tennis, I don't yet have a uh, permanent home for tennis writings, but uh, I did my first freelance piece today up at Inside Hook. And that's it, it was fun to get back into the rhythm of things. I'd also kind of, to be honest, uh, lost track of the ATP and WTA for a few weeks as work chaos sort of picked up. But this past week, it was nice to be able to closely watch the ATP finals and find some things to say about it. But uh, yeah, sort of nice to be in some normal 
uh, tennis viewing rhythm again. Yeah, the ATP Finals uh, provided a uh, a nice return to to normalcy shortly, and it was good to see you get your writing up. You can find that piece on InsideHook.com. It's titled "The Future of Men's Tennis Is Finally, Hopefully, Probably Here," and one of the big <laughs> themes of that. And I think you said it really well right off the top. There's been a lot of false starts in the past. I mean, you can go as far yeah. back as Grigor Dimitrov and Kane Ishikori and Milos sure. Raonic, where people have kind of pronounced tennis's next big thing, and then it's kind of fell short. But I think this next group feels different to a lot of people. And, you know, team at 26 is, is an older guy but has developed so nicely. It, it feels right. different right now from from I, I'd say the uh, early 2000s or 2010s. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, I've also, I mean, it's been a real pleasure to, as someone who didn't always believe in teams' potential, to just see how he's grown in the last few years. Um, I think a lot, some aspects of his game do remind me of Stan. Uh, just thinking about the big cuts, the ball, and the incredible power they able to produce. And I think I could see him having maybe a not-too-different career trajectory. Definitely see him ending up with a handful of slams, um, you know, doing very well on clay as he has, and now having success on the hard court as well. Uh, so it, it was nice to be to have my mind changed. I think a big moment was seeing him go toe-to-toe with Nadal at the Open last year and just has developed pretty nicely since then. I totally agree with you on the Vavrinka comparison, and I would go as far to say, and I said it on Monday, that team will probably surpass Vavrinka's accomplishments in his career. He's ahead of where Vavrinka yeah. was at 26, and I think the biggest sure. attribute that team has where uh, Stan was not as strong is just the movement and the legs and the mm-hmm. explosivity in terms of uh, defending. Team is in absolutely incredible shape. Uh, we've seen how well he holds up at the end of these sort of marathon matches. And I've, I've, I've really been impressed by that. Um, I just think the fitness is on a different level than what we've seen from Stan. For, for my money, he's the fittest player on tour, and uh, maybe Borna Choric is also in that yeah. conversation. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, those guys. And then Diminor obviously carrying a little less weight, but uh, seems to have you know incredible speed and, and stamina, too, if I think about sort of the matches he had against Marin Cilic at the Open. That was that was a great one. And uh, I think we'll see him, maybe even as he physically develops more, uh, just be one of the toughest guys to grind past in, in a long match. You ended the piece by proclaiming that someone in their 20s will win a slam next year. And it's absurd that we're in a position where no one in their 20s <laughs> is a Grand Slam champion. But who are you favoring to be that player? I think at the moment I'd probably say Medvedev. I just think the the stretch he sustained towards the end of this season was absolutely absurd. Um, Playing six straight finals, uh, figuring out a wide range of opponents. I think he's found a style that really works for him and that frustrates a lot of different opposing play styles. And... I could just see him putting it together for two weeks on a hard court. Um, I'm not sure whether that'd be Australian necessarily, but I don't see why not. Yeah, he's in great form, even though he, he did peter out a little bit uh, 
at the ATP Finals, but you know he's played a lot of tennis, and that's totally understandable. I agree that that was my my takeaway from his zero and four stretch to end the season was just a total yeah. a total pass on that due to how much tennis he's played. To me, though, sure. it's team in terms of who's most likely to win a Grand Slam next year. I just feel like nobody's close to the big three at Wimbledon, and I think that that's a yeah. tournament that's it's it's not gonna it'll go to one of them. And Hardcourt has so much parity, so many contenders, and team is in the mix there. Medvedev certainly uh, also in the mix. But on clay, team is really a Nadal injury away from being the runaway sure. favorite. Yeah. So probability-wise. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, he he really is the only contender on clay, if we're all being honest, um, non-Nadal division. Um and it'll, I think it's sort of a matter of time and health uh, as to when he finally picks up his, his first title at the French. Let's so talk. I think now, yeah, now that we've seen him kind of fully operating on, on two surfaces, uh, I definitely am, am a bigger believer in his, his slam chances. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about the man who just won the ATP final, Stefano Tsitsipas. You wrote a piece for him, a long one, uh, on Deadspin. And the sense I get is that's one of your the favorite one of your favorite pieces you've written. Yeah, I think that's right. It was sort of the first time that I'd done to spend a good amount of time with a player and you know write about that in a leisurely, uh, less sort of quick blog way, and that was a lot of fun. And he's he's a very interesting personality, as I think a lot of tennis fans have picked up on. And it's it'll be fun to watch a him navigate uh, his life as, you know, one of the most famous tennis players in the world. And I think he presents sort of a different personality type than a lot of what we've seen in the past. You have a very unique perspective on this because a lot of that piece is focused on his use of social media, his vlogging, but also his tweeting and his, uh, I don't know if he's as big in on Instagram because I, I'm not as big on Instagram, but he actually took a reprieve from social media, as I'm sure you know, yeah. sometime after that. What did you make of, of Stefanos taking a step back and deciding to uh, put put the screens on the back burner? Yeah, I, I think he's a, a pretty reflective person. Um, he's obviously also a very young person, so he's still testing out what works for him. But it seems that at different points in this season, he's had a little bit of mental fatigue and has been trying to clear his head and reset and get re-engaged with the sport. And I could definitely see, you know, setting the screen aside being a, a good first step towards doing that. And obviously he, he did find a way, despite some disappointing slam results towards the end of the year, to pick things back up and play a really, really good tournament last week. Um, so I, it, it is sort of, we think about tennis as such a, sort of single-minded focus where you don't have time for other things. And he obviously does have a lot of other interests outside the sport. So it'll be interesting to see how he balances and manages his time. Did you get a sense spending time with him that there was a lot of energy and a, and a lot of focus directed towards the uh, the outside stuff? Yeah, I think uh, one of my favorite quotes in the piece is that he admits to me that sometimes he's on court, you know, playing or practicing and he's his mind is thinking about the next video he's working on. <laughs> um, and, you know, I don't think that's going to severely hamper him. He's obviously already had incredible results and 
will continue to be you know, one of the best young players coming up. But it's just something to think about. And I could, I wouldn't be shocked if he had different moments like this in his career where he sort of had to gather himself and reset his priorities and maybe set aside some of his hobbies at, at certain times. But I don't, in, in principle, I don't really see why tennis players shouldn't be able to maintain some semblance of uh, a personal life and their own interests and, and so on. It's just a matter of budgeting. Right, and I think popularity mar- matters a lot in this sport because a lot of how much money players make is dependent directly on popularity because it leads to endorsement right. money. Unlike other sports where, you know, I don't know, uh, Mike Trout in baseball has a multi-million dollar contract and no one needs to hear him speak ever. I think tennis yeah. is a little bit different. Definitely different. Um, you could, you know, Mike Trout could walk down the street and maybe not even be bothered and he's still collecting his paycheck. Um, but Stefanos is definitely someone who's aware of, I guess, the value of developing a brand. And I, I could definitely see him, you know, wanting to sell ads on his videos or just become a public figure. Sometimes when you see him holding the mic uh, at one of these trophy ceremonies, he looks like he's ready to do like a like a five-minute stand-up set or something. He's just pacing around and <laughs> kind of gesturing to the crowd and really relishing the moment in a way that I don't think is completely natural to him, but is, is sort of charming in its own way. Yes, uh, awkwardly charming. I would, I would agree with that, yeah. with that assessment. I feel like you're more tuned in than most to the kind of personalities and the marketing that players do on tour. So outside of Tsitsipas, where do you feel like the other young guys fit in in terms of kind of narrative and public perception? Yeah, I see. So I guess just coming from the last uh, week of play, just looking at some of those personalities, uh, Medvedev, as we've seen, is someone who kind of relishes the troll element, but also had a very sincere side uh, during that U.S. Open run. So I could see him actually doing pretty well in, in the public spotlight, even though having talked to him personally, I know he's a pretty introverted guy and doesn't necessarily want to be uh, you know, in the public eye constantly. But there is something genuinely appealing about him. Um, Sasha does not seem to want to have much to do with any of that and likes to keep a low profile. So I think despite seeing the tour try to push him as some kind of charismatic figure, it may not play out as expected. I still think he's going to have a great career and great results, but that aspect may not play out as well. I think in terms of a complete package of someone who's very poised and uh, has the game to back it up and has always been very thoughtful and impressed, I could definitely see Felix uh, seen being the kind of figure that they want to to, to market the sport, um, just soft-spoken, kind of thoughtful, and uh, like I said, very poised kid who seems like he'll be a really, really good player too. But yeah, I, it's it's interesting. Their I, their dream, I'm sure, would be for like Nick Kyrgios to focus and and do well because he does have sort of an innate appeal that reaches some viewers outside of the usual fan circles, um, but. I I'm sure they're not gambling on that happening. So, Yeah, I, I think that's uh, undeniable, that, that Kyrgios yeah. certainly brings the numbers. And I think Felix, I agree with you, kind of reminds me more of the 
kind of character that Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal are yes, in terms of sure. kind of, yeah. uh, you know, nothing nothing too far out there and, and valuing kind of class and respecting the sport to the fullest extent. But there's also nothing yeah. wrong with a villain. And if, if, right. if Sasha Zverev is going to play that villain role and embrace that villain role, that can be good yeah. for tennis. For sure. And I, I had a thought today, or maybe yesterday, that I'm not too invested in, but I could sort of also see him having like a playing a birdish type role where he, I think the game style is not too far off. They're just both really nice ball strikers. They like to play from the baseline, like big serve. But also just being this somewhat muted presence, always uh, challenging, you know, the charismatic big three players, but never really craving the spotlight himself. Um, I, I could sort of see some parallels there. But I think you're spot on with the comparison with Felix in the big three. Like, to put it simply, you could just see him in a Rolex ad. It requires a very little stretch of the imagination to see that ad. And speaking of the big three, we've kind of spoken around them so far. Uh, where do you see... Their three-way battle, you know, they're still, again, they, they mm-hmm. finished one, two, three. They swept all four slams. Mm-hmm. As as much as we can get, as as much as we like to look ahead to the future and some of the younger guys because it's it's fun and it's interesting, they're still all just knocking on the door and the big three are at the top. And yeah. that's obviously still a dream scenario for the ATP. But where do you see that in in 2020? What's your feel for how that battle plays out between those three? I honestly think they'll still get maybe, let's say, three of the four slams. Uh, I think maybe there'll be one opening. But I I wouldn't be surprised if they kept this up for, you know, at least another two seasons. I don't know what Fetter's goals are uh, in terms of, you know, I'm sure he could play at a very high level for a very long time, but he also seems like someone who values his quality of life and maybe just wants to spend time with his family and uh, at some point um, slow things down. Uh, Djokovic, being the youngest of the bunch, could see him doing this for the indefinite future. Um, Nadal, we we talk a lot about health being the limiting factor for him, but, you know, he's, still playing really good tennis at the end of a long season. So who knows? I, I, I wouldn't close the book on them, obviously, at any point. And I think if I were, it's sort of a played out conversation, but if I think if we're predicting slam counts, I I have Djokovic coming out on top eventually. Okay. This is, it's interesting because I think we exit 2019 and all three of them are on a trajectory that they can be pretty happy with. Federer s- stepped it up from 2018 uh, in terms yeah, of in terms of level. Down here for him. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, he's not that far removed from 2017 where he won two slams. So Federer's in a good spot. And I think the match we saw from him against Djokovic last week was one of the cleanest offensive matches he's played since 2017. Uh, I'm not sure he even had a match in 2018 where he looked that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the straight sets went over Djokovic it was very convincing. And then you look at Nadal. No one's been better at beating up when healthy on the rest of the tour than yeah. Rafa. And the only hurdles that that he struggled with in in recent years is 
Federer and Djokovic, but you can go pretty far even without beating those two. Right. Which obviously he could still turn that around with the level he's at and the offensive tennis he's introducing. And then Djokovic, it's interesting because it almost felt like he could have done more this season, yet he picked up another two majors. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. It's, it's totally true. He, um, Whenever he is playing, he's playing good enough to play. He's just at an incredible level, and then he's definitely modified his game in intelligent ways to uh, maintain that level as he's aged, um, and perhaps lost a bit of the just raw speed he used to have to chase down balls. Um, but you know, the way he closes to the net now, his volleying touch—it's—it's all incredible. He—he he just plans the points out as well as anyone I've ever seen. Before we shift gears to Deadspin, I want to ask, do do you even have a take right now on the Davis Cup? Because I I wouldn't blame you if you didn't. (laughs) I I do not. I probably need to spend more time uh, thinking about that, but I I know it's it's something that's that's in the conversation right now. How how about yourself? Well, uh, I'm kind of in your boat. I need to... uh, it, there's only been there's only been one day or or maybe two I think just one day of play, and yeah. it's on FS right now. My only thoughts are this: it's not good that this is on FS2 for visibility yeah. because and that's is, in the U.S. That's Fox Sports Two. You can you go ahead. It's it's been one of my you know biggest complaints about being an American tennis fan is that broadcasting setup is so fractured, so confusing, and sometimes straight up just lacking, and this is a great case example of that, that it makes it hard to stay engaged in the tour outside the majors unless you're really going out of your way. Um, you know, there are huge business incentives and reasons things are the, the way they are, I'm sure, but it just it can't be the most constructive way to build a fan culture. Uh, when people have to go around chasing the programming uh, at different outlets, and it and that even that changes from season to season, so it's tough. It, it's it's tough, and it's unfortunate that an event that should be fun to follow, uh, like the Davis Cup, it becomes so hard for American fans to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And and this stuff is important. We saw it when the WTA had exclusive rights with uh, B in Sports. Am I pronouncing right. that even correctly? Because if I'm not unintentionally, it's proving my point but but that was my guess as well but okay yes i mean this is uh it's exposure is is really important and fs2 is a channel that has less distribution than tennis channel and tennis fans aren't used to going to it for for tennis because nothing is really on there except all of a sudden the davis cup gets slapped onto there yeah and i think it's just one of those structural obstacles to tennis picking up a, a place in, in American pop culture is that there are already amazing personalities and amazing talents. Um, there's no drought in that sense. It's just like make it easier for people to engage with this stuff, make better highlight videos, um, make sure these players are getting to show off their personalities a little bit, make sure the actual matches are viewable. <laughs> With, uh, without too much inconvenience. Well, speaking of media, 
Uh, Deadspin is a popular and, you know, I don't know, that could change, but it, at least it, it was a very popular sports blog that you uh, you were their tennis writer. And what happened, I'm, I'm going to explain it in simple terms and feel free to amend sure. and add to, to my uh, brief summary. But essentially, they were bought by a company called Geo Media and the new CEO, Jim Spanfeller, basically said, all right, everyone, stick to sports, no politics, to which the editor-in-chief at Deadspin, Barry Pachetsky, said, no, that's not – that can't really happen. We're not going to do that. And then he was uh, he was let go. And after Pachetsky was let go, a lot of the writers followed, including yourself. Yeah, you have the broad strokes right. I'll, I'll just make a few little tweaks. Yep. So – Deadspin was part of a uh, network of sites, formerly way back when, called Gawker Media Group, then later Gizmodo Media Group, and most recently Geo Media. So Geo Media was renamed um, after being acquired by a private equity company called Great Hill Partners. Uh, that that firm installed a new CEO, Jim, Jim Spanfeller, and things kind of went sour from there. He had a very different vision for at least our site than the writers did. And it, there were a few points of tension. Uh, one definitely, as you mentioned, was the idea that Deadspin should be a more you know, straightforwardly stick to sports kind of site, which has uh, never really been in its DNA. And his management style was very alienating to our staff. He, in effect, forced out our last previous editor-in-chief, and then our fired, our acting editor-in-chief, uh, Barry, and just morale was very, very strained, and uh, at some point we just saw their vision of the site was something we couldn't really abide by. It wasn't the site we wanted to be a part of, and after Barry's firing, I think the staff collectively realized uh, we were ready to move on, and, and uh, it, was, it was definitely a sad ending to a project we'd all loved working on, but in some ways I think we were proud to have uh, gone out in solidarity with each other. So the decision was pretty easy. Is that accurate because it was kind of this collective realization? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's never an easy decision to quit your job, especially in an industry as unstable as media, digital media, but within... A few hours, I think, of Barry being fired, we realized this is sort of a point of no return and that our management was acting in such bad faith that we couldn't count on them to run the company or manage us in a, in a fair way. So it, it definitely was a, a collective decision, and people's individual decisions to quit their jobs soon followed. Uh, I think over the course of three days, basically the entire site had been emptied of, of its previous staff. And then it it sort of lived on in a zombie form as um, we suspect one of the people in management has been writing the pieces from an anonymous byline. And then that person resigned as well. And I don't think there's been a new article written on the site in at least 10 days, probably a little more. Wow. I mean, that is just a very, uh, it's a very sudden turn for yeah. uh, a website that that had 
quite a bit of a cult following and notoriety. The intersection of of sports and politics is is a is a big issue in this uh, in the sports media space right now, and mm-hmm. it, it's gone it's gone multiple ways for different organizations. But for Deadspin specifically, why was Stick to Sports so unanimously rejected? Yeah, I think it's because that's never really been the ethos of the site. If you want to find gamers and sort of straightforward uh, match reporting and, you know, athlete profiles and that kind of thing. There are places that do that stuff at a scale, you know, that's much bigger than what we can do. You can go to ESPN, you can read the news wires, you can, you can find that stuff, um, just the straight up who, what, where, why, when. But we always uh, took a sort of different, you know, irreverent, um, often overtly political and, usually outsider angle to to the sports uh, to sports coverage so asking us to move and and that meant um, in subject matter as well so a lot of our writers have interest outside sports and our site was always a a, a free place to explore those things and and to write about other things that captured our attention and that's been has always just been a kind of the sum of the interests of its writers at that given point of point in time. So to take that away felt like it was removing one of the core elements of the site's identity. And I think that along with the edict to stick to sports and uh, what we suspected is just a, a business move that's being made um, to repackage the site. It's maybe something more palatable advertisers, even though I, I think that's misguided too. We've never had problems selling ads in the past. So I just think there was a lot of um, incoherent management theory there, and we picked up on that, and we're a little concerned about what the long-term prospects of the site would be if this was going to be our new ownership. Right. It seemed that uh, the the ownership wasn't fully in touch with what they were really uh, taking over uh, in terms of Definitely what the, what the property was. For for you, uh, what are the next steps? Um, so I'm currently freelancing. Um, hope to be announcing a somewhat more regular place for tennis writing soon. Um, and but for the time being, it's honestly just uh, yeah, picking up some freelance work, thinking about what comes next and uh, hopefully broadening a little bit beyond my sports coverage as well, but definitely keeping that up as tennis primarily and also basketball are subjects I love to cover in my writing, and I am uh, eager to do more of that as as I, as I uh, keep up my writing career. And if people want to reach you? Uh, best way is probably my email. That's G-I-R-I. N A T H A N two four at Gmail. That's Kitty Nathan two four, and um, I'm on Twitter at uh, Kitty Nathan. So either one of those should be a good way to find me. All right, uh, sounds good, uh, Giddy. I uh, appreciate it very much. Um, I I didn't know that you were supposed to. We we have something in common, which is uh, hard first names to pronounce, <laughs> uh, because my. Most people they they know me as Gill on here, which is simple uh-huh. enough. But my my full name is Gillen. Uh, so and I get when people read that I get 
Jillian, Gillian, uh, and some people just uh, Guillaume if they think I'm French. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet you get like a French-style pronunciation as well. Yeah, I was, I was actually uh, a U.S. Open ball boy, and they thought the, the people in charge of giving out the assignments thought my name was Guillaume. So essentially, as long as I worked that job, three weeks out of the year, I was just – I was Guillaume because <laughs> I, there was – it was no setting to correct a person when they're giving out a bunch of assignments, court assignments right. to hundreds of ball people. You can think about it as a little uh, study abroad experience. You got to experience what yes. it like French for, for a right. couple weeks. I was uh, I was uh, someone uh, I was abroad in Queens as as a French person, <laughs> but and <laughs> I I got for for you I got the I think I got the vowels right right it rhymes with Diddy yeah, right. but I just pronounced yep. the R it should be like a D not like an R that's that's right yeah. all right I I think early in my Deadspin career there there's there's an article explaining how how to pronounce my name it might be somewhere out there but. Uh... Yeah, it's definitely something. It's it's been a uh, always been a conversation starter. I <laughs> imagine it has been for you too. Yes, no, no doubt. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Let, let's do it again down the road. Thanks so much for coming for on. Sure. Take care. You too. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wallen. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.